Well, I invite you now to open the Bible with me and turn to the book of Ephesians for the last time. We have come now to the end of our study of this epistle, this letter that Paul wrote to the saints in Ephesus. Maybe some of you remember we started it the first week of January 2018, and here we are finishing up the last week of December 2018. 38 times we've opened up to this book together, and today we come to the conclusion in Ephesians 6, 21 to 24, page 979, if you got one of our books. So this is the final greetings of the letter, like the, the benediction. And the truth is, if you read a lot of the commentaries or you follow some of the preachers as they preach through Ephesians, some of them don't even preach on this passage. Some of them, they just summarize it in like a page. They don't give a lot of attention to it. And unfortunately, I don't think the Ephesians themselves gave the attention to this passage that they needed to. So I want to encourage you that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's look at what God says to us here in Ephesians 6, 21 to 24. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So there, there it is. That's kind of his, his sound off, his, his ending lines there. Now he mentions this guy you may not have heard of before. You may not know how to pronounce his name here. Tychicus. And this guy, if you actually did a search in your Bible app or on some kind of browser like Blue Letter Bible, if you did a search for this guy, you would see he's mentioned kind of throughout the New Testament. This was a regular traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. In fact, he delivers this letter to the church in Ephesus. At the same time, he delivered the letter in Colossians. You could write down his name, and you could write down Colossians 4, 7 to 9, where Paul talks about him as well. And he refers to him as a faithful minister, a beloved brother. And Paul's basically saying, if you want to know how I'm doing, ask Ty. He can tell you anything, basically, is what he's saying. He, he can tell you, he's my, he's, my, he's my brother. He can tell you anything about me, and he will encourage your hearts. He was with Paul on his missionary journey when the church in Ephesus got started in Acts 19 and 20. He fills in for Timothy. He fills in for Titus. I don't know what you think about the Apostle Paul, but a lot of us get the idea of some super apostle who's out there taking names for Jesus just on this solo evangelism rampage. The truth is Paul was always surrounded by a team of people. In fact, when he had to stand trial at the end of his life and he was alone, he points out that he was by himself because usually he was surrounded by brothers who served with him. I guarantee you, this idea that there's some kind of famous celebrity man of God, you know any man of God, you get to know him, you're going to see there's a whole team of brothers working with him. And Tychicus here, he's part of the team of the apostle Paul. And so that's who really brought this letter. That's who he sends. Now there's a lot of interest in verses 23 and 24. 
because we're used to some kind of statement of benediction at the end of the letter, like peace to you from God the Father, grace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. And usually there's some kind of promise, some kind of encouraging word about, hey, God is the one who is able to strengthen you or keep you from stumbling or God's going to do this. Usually there's some kind of statement like that. But here in verses 23 and 24, there's two statements. There's a statement about peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's this statement about the grace, that the grace that is to all. And then it says this phrase, who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now that phrase there has a lot of Bible scholars thinking because that's not usual. This feels like kind of a one-of-a-kind statement where at the end of the letter, it's talking about, hey, and make sure that there's grace for everybody who loves Jesus and their love is incorruptible. It's almost like one kind of little last statement there at the end. Hey, make sure that your love is undying is a way that it's translated. Make sure that your love is sincere is a way that it's translated. Like your love is not going to, it's without decay or decomposition. It's not, it's not rotting away. No, make sure your love is incorruptible. And, and people are like, well, is that really what, it, what it's saying? Because that almost sounds like there's this last little thought to the Ephesians. Hey, make sure that your love for Jesus remains, that it continues. That's not typical. Usually the end of the letter is just encouraging and what God's going to do and the grace of God to you. And so some people are arguing that that word at the end, incorruptible, uh, it should, is really about the grace, that it is the grace of God that is incorruptible. And we can affirm that the grace of God is definitely incorruptible. Can we all say amen to that? I mean, that's how this whole book started. We just sang about it uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, and if you go back to Ephesians 1, and if you just want to look at it real quick, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, is all one long run-on sentence. It took us a whole month to go through that sentence. And if you were back here in January, we talked about we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If there's any good thing that God can give to you in Christ, he has given it to you. You are rich. You have every blessing that God can give. And then we talked about how we are loved. The Father has loved us to adopt us. And it tells us what the Father does, that he loved us, what Christ has done to redeem us, what the Holy Spirit has done to seal us, that he's the guarantee of our eternal inheritance. And all of this, it says, is because of God's grace. And it's all to the praise of his glory. This is all about God being good to us. That's what grace is, undeserved favor. The goodness of God revealed. Look what God has given you in Jesus. He's loved you. He's redeemed you from your sin and forgiven you. He's sealed you in the Spirit. The Spirit now lives in you and guarantees you will be with God in eternity, receiving an inheritance as one of His children. I mean, this is the grace of God. It is definitely incorruptible. It's what the whole Christian life is built on, is the grace of God. But is that, go back now to chapter 6, verse 24. Is that what Paul's referring to here? Is he bringing up again the grace of God, or is he referring to the love of the Ephesians and putting this last thought in their minds that make sure your love doesn't fade away, make sure your love doesn't die out. Now, one of the key things that we would use to help figure out something like that, as people study the Greek language, as they try to figure it out, hmm, is it incorruptible grace or is it about our love being incorruptible? 
One of the keys that we're going to use, and if you're taking notes, if you've got the handout, you might want to write this down. You might want to write down, Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay? That's a very important principle of hermeneutics for all of us to understand. Hermeneutics is the art of interpreting Scripture. It's the art of getting to the original meaning. What did Paul mean when he wrote to the Ephesians? Was Paul under the Holy Spirit giving one last thought to the Ephesians to make sure that their love was sincere and didn't die out and didn't get corrupted over time? Is that what Paul wanted to do? Well, one of the ways we can answer that question is think to ourselves, hmm, if this feels like a unique kind of way to end a letter where you talk about their incorruptible love, is there any other scripture that would make us think the love of the Ephesian church was some kind of issue that might help us come to the understanding here. And it turns out there is more scripture about the Ephesian church. In fact, there's a whole nother letter to the church in Ephesus written by Jesus Christ himself. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Everybody, you need to grab your Bible. You need to turn there. It's on page 1028 if you got one of our books because it's like bonus letter to the Ephesians, okay? Here's the thing. As we study these letters in the New Testament, these are letters that were real correspondence between people, like whoever wrote the letter and then real people who received the letter at a specific point in time. This is historical fact. The Ephesians is not a letter in the Bible. Ephesians is, is a real group of Christian people who lived in the city of Ephesus. And we know that Paul started that church in Acts 19 and 20. We know that he wrote the letter of Ephesians when he was in prison. But there is more that happens to these people after this letter. In fact, it becomes clear that Timothy at some time was doing ministry in Ephesus. That Timothy, Paul's disciple, maybe became the pastor of the church in Ephesus. In fact, the the Apostle John, who writes the book of Revelation, when he's on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos, some rock in the Mediterranean Sea, where they basically marooned him. They said, hey, you need to stop telling everybody about Jesus, John. You're causing way too much trouble. So we're going to put you out on a rock where you can't do anything, where you can't impact the world with the gospel of Jesus. What did he do while he was out there on the rock? Well, he just wrote the book of Revelation. That's all he did, right? just told us all the unveiled vision of glory in the return of Jesus Christ that is yet uh, to come. That's what he did when they exiled him, right? And so as part of this revelation that the Apostle John has, and we think when they exiled him, they took him out of, wait for it, Ephesus. And then we think they exiled him. So, I mean, you're talking about a church where Paul is the, the church planter, and writing letters to them, where Timothy was a pastor, where the Apostle John did ministry, and now when Jesus is giving his revelation to John, he sends seven letters out to seven different churches, just short progress reports from Jesus about how these churches are doing. And the first one is to the church in Ephesus. Can you imagine that? If all of a sudden somebody ran in right now with a letter, hey, this is from Jesus, and he wants to tell you guys how you're doing here in Huntington Beach. I mean, you ever feel that sense of like, whoa, that heaviness when the report cards are coming out? Anybody know what I'm talking about? That's what's going on here. Hey, Jesus, why don't you really tell us what you really think about the church in Ephesus? Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 are Jesus's personal thoughts on this church. And out of respect for God's word, I'm going to ask that everybody would stand up as we read this passage of Scripture. Because this is what Jesus said to that church, and you and I need to hear these words of Jesus today. Revelation chapter 2, 
verses 1 to 7. Please follow along. I'll read it for us. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That is the reading of God's word. Please go ahead and grab a seat. So, hmm, there's this mysterious line at the end of Ephesians. Grace to all who love the Lord our Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. And then later, Jesus shows up. He writes a letter to the church in Ephesus, and he says, you have abandoned your love. Their love got corrupted. Unfortunately, they didn't listen to that last line in the letter. And now Jesus has to come. And what he says to this church is amazing. He says, you guys are doing the work. I mean, he gives them a, a, a commendation here. He gives them an encouragement that these people are really doing the good works that Jesus would want them to do. They're doing the right things there at church. In fact, they're doing it over time. They're sticking with it. They're patiently enduring. They're bearing up under pressure. He even says that they have not grown weary. They are doing the right things. They are continuing to do them. This church is doing good work. And then he says another commendation to them that these people, they are teaching the right things. He says they're testing. There's these false apostles. There's these false teachers, the Nicolaitans. There's people out there, and what they're saying is a little bit of truth and then a little bit of lies and error and deceitfulness. And what this church in Ephesus is doing is they're testing. They're comparing everything that is said with the Scripture. They're exercising discernment, and they're saying, hey, what they're saying is false. That's not true. Hey, these Nicolaitans out here, they're spreading lies. They're not from God. That's not the message of God. So they're actually teaching the right things, and they're doing the right things. How does Jesus feel about a church that's teaching the right things and doing the right things? Well, he says, if you don't have love for me, I'm going to come, and I'm going to shut you down. That's what he says. Okay? That's the, the remove the lampstand line. The lampstand in Revelation is the symbol of the church. Hey, you guys are doing all the right things. You're teaching all the right things, but you have a, you don't, you've lost that love for me. Your love for me is not incorruptible. No, it's, it's decayed over time. You've lost your love for me, and if you don't repent, if you don't get back to that love that you really need to have for me, even though you're doing the right things and teaching the right things, I'm going to come and shut you down because I'd rather have no church at all than a church that doesn't love me. This is what Jesus is saying. And I know a lot of people who walk around and they say things like, my church really preaches the truth, man. 
Yeah, I like going to my church. We say it how it really is. Oh, my church, we're doing the right stuff. We're doing the good stuff. Yeah, a lot of people sticking their chest out, patting themselves on the back, really proud of what their church is doing and what their church is teaching. And Jesus says, yeah, you're missing the whole point. The question is, do you love me? That's what he said. Jesus is not okay with people going through the motions of church. He wants it to be motivated by love. And if it's not motivated by love, he says very clearly, repent, turn from that, change your mind. That is sin that you have allowed. If you're not living out of a love for Jesus Christ, even if you're doing the right things, even if you're saying the right things, if it's not motivated by a love for Jesus, then it's sin and you need to repent. That's what Jesus Christ himself says to this church in Ephesus, this church that has this great history. I mean, we would all be saying, oh, that's a solid church. Oh, they're doing some strong work over there in Ephesus. And Jesus is like, I'm ready to shut you down. Where's the love? Now, one thing I notice about us Christians is we're happy to tell the whole world that we're not like all the other religions because we're not a religion. Between us and Jesus, it's a relationship. But then a lot of people come to church like it's a religion. And they go through the motions because that's what we're supposed to do. And they put on the external acts of obedience and they say the right things and they do the right things. And Jesus is saying to his church, hey, where's the relationship? Is that really what it's about with you? Is it really that you could say as you sit here today, as we come to the end of this year and we get ready for a new one, can you say that right now you are living your life out of a love for Jesus Christ? That is the defining motivation of your soul. Or would you have to admit here this morning that the greatest days of you loving Jesus are the good old days and you don't love Jesus as much today as you used to? Jesus is not okay with it. It wouldn't work in any other relationship. Can you imagine a spouse saying to their husband or wife, you know, we've been married now so many years, and weren't the early years really great? I mean, these years are just kind of okay. You know what I mean? I mean, could you imagine saying that to one of your precious children that God has blessed you with? Hey, I used to love you a lot more than I do right now. You know, when you were growing up, you were so cute. You used to listen to me. I really like that about you. And now look at you. And I'll just keep pr- holding on to those, those pictures of long ago, right? How, how's your kid going to feel about that? How's your spouse going to feel about that? Let me tell you how your Lord's going to feel about that. He's not tolerating. He's not okay. If you, I'm just telling you, if, if your answer in your heart today is that you love Jesus less than you used to, he's saying to you right now, repent. He's saying, why? Why don't you love me like you used to? Let's get back to that. And he gives us two specific things to do. Look at Revelation chapter 2 verse 5. After he calls it out that their love has been corrupted in Ephesus he says remember therefore from where you have fallen. First thing Jesus wants us to do in this process of repentance of of turning from this lovelessness for him is he wants us to remember the heights. Let's get that down for point number one if you're taking notes on our handout remember the heights. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember what was it like when you first got saved and you loved Jesus or, or maybe there was some other time in your life that you think of as, as kind of the, the golden hour when you were the closest with Jesus, you were just on fire, you were filled with zeal, there was a real passion from your soul, and it was just this pursuit of a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's, that's what he's talking about. Hey, can you remember a time like that? Hey, can you remember what it was like when you were at the heights? Can you remember your best days? I mean, hopefully... 
You're living in those days right now. Maybe some of you are new Christians. You're still experiencing your first love. Maybe you're a person who's been walking with the Lord for a long time, and you can honestly say here today that you love Jesus more today than you ever have before. Praise the Lord. Hey, remember those heights. Stay right there if you are there. And if you've fallen from that, if you've lost that love, you've got to go back in your mind. What was it like? What made you respond to Jesus with love for him just coming out of you? How did, how did you get to that place? And the key here is you've got to remember, this is something that the Bible actually wants us to do a lot. In fact, God, he set up times in the nation of Israel where they had to shut down everything they were doing for the whole purpose of remembering what God had done. Because as you remember who God is and what he's done for you, that's what stirs up and reignites the fire of love in your soul for him is when you remember his grace and his goodness to you. So this is a key thing that all of us need to do is remember God's goodness and the love of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Psalm 103. Everybody, let's go back to the Old Testament and look at a song that is designed here to cause us to remember. And we kind of sang it already. Psalm 103, page 502. You know, music is often attached to memory. And maybe that's why some of us love Christmas music so much. We have that certain song sung by that certain artist, and it takes us back to a, a place we celebrated Christmas or loved ones that we celebrated with. And we love hearing that Christmas song because it takes us back to this memory that we have in our life. Well, Psalm 103 was a song that was designed for them to remember how good God had been to them. Bless the Lord. This is David writing here. He says, bless the Lord. My soul has something good to say about God. And bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. That's what Jesus is looking for. That all that is within you. If there's one thing Jesus wants from your heart, he wants all of it. That's so clear. He wants you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. This is always what Jesus is looking for in his disciples, is do we have that all-in commitment? Are we still holding back a little bit for ourselves, or is it offering everything to Jesus Christ? That's what it says here. All that is your soul, all that's within you, you're giving it to God. You're saying good things about him. And then he says this, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And here's why I want to say such good things about God. Forget not all his benefits. I remember all that God has done for me. And then he does a list here. He starts counting his blessings. Who forgives all your iniquity? Hey, do you remember what it was like when you felt convicted about your sin? When you were carrying around like this weight of guilt? You were feeling the full effect of your shame like you knew there was a holy God in heaven and you had fallen short of his standard and you could feel it on your physical body, this conviction of your sin. And you cried out to the Lord and you begged him for mercy and you pleaded for the grace that is in Jesus Christ. You confessed your sin and God forgave you for all of your sin. And it was like this sense of relief, this weightlessness that you felt like this burden had been taken away from you. And you now knew that Jesus Christ had paid for your sin once and for all. Does anybody remember what it felt like to be forgiven? Do you remember the love that you felt that Jesus Christ would pay for your sin so you would never have to be judged for it? 
Man, that forgiveness of all your iniquity, that's something we need to remember. All of my sin has been forgiven. Remember what that felt like. Remember the heights of that. Then he says, who heals all your diseases. Has anybody else ever been hugging the toilet bowl of life? Anybody else ever been there? You've been bowing down at the porcelain throne where something in your physical body is clearly not right and you feel like you're going to burst. Anybody ever been there with me? Been crying out to the Lord for mercy, right? Uh, God, make it stop. Make this pain, this feeling stop. Some of us have even ended up in the hospital feeling that way. Like we're feeling like we, we were going to die. I, I know a man here, a part of our fellowship here at this church. Something happened to him this year. He was in such intense physical pain there in his stomach. He had to have a surgery. And as he got recovered from the surgery, it was not settling well. And he cried out that he was ready for the Lord to take his life. He had confidence he would be with the Lord. And he was ready. He was ready to die. That's how bad his pain was. How unbearable. It was to be in his physical body at that moment. And you know what? God healed him. God sustained his life. God did a miracle to heal this man. In fact, the doctor literally said that some higher power must have been involved with this man. And this is a case they would be studying for years because there is no medical explanation of how he is alive. I'll tell you how he's alive. The Lord healed him from all his diseases. That's what happened. This is something that God does. Have you ever been healed of your diseases? You ever had a loved one who was really sick in a bad place and God brought them back to health? Do you remember what that felt like? When you thought you were going to lose them and they were still alive? That's something God did. Remember the heights. Remember what that was like. Then it says, who redeems your life from the pit. Were you ever at rock bottom? Were you ever face-to-face -face with the consequences of your own actions? Did you ever have to reap what you've sown? That's what the pit is. That's when you reach the end. You, you, you thought it was going to play out differently. You thought you were going to get what you wanted, and you ended up with nothing and nowhere. And who reached down? Who cared about you when nobody else did? Who put out his strong right hand and lifted you up and gave you a new life in Jesus Christ? Who purchased you when you were worth nothing and gave you value in Christ? The Lord redeemed your life from the pit. Remember the bad times? Remember when God lifted you up out of those times? That's the heights. You need to remember that. See, that's what it's saying. Look what it says. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good. My God, he wants to be so good to you. He wants to give you so much love, not give you what you deserve in judgment. That's mercy. He doesn't give you what you deserve, but grace is he gives you good things instead of what you deserve. And has God been so good to you that you now aren't looking for life outside of yourself? You actually have life in Jesus Christ, in your soul, and you can say that it is well with your soul here today? That's something God's done. Remember that. Remember those moments of perfect peace. And complete contentment. That's something God gave you. He satisfied you. And then it says, he renews your youth like the eagles. You feel like you've got wings, like you can fly, like your energy, your vitality in life is restored as you feel close to God. You feel energized by the Holy Spirit. You feel like, hey, I feel young again. I feel like the best days could be ahead of me. That's all the goodness of God in your life. Do you, have you forgotten that? Or do you remember how good your whole life story is defined by grace upon grace. How good has God been to you and how easy is it for you to forget? Jesus is saying, remember. Remember from where you've fallen. 
you didn't used to think this way. You used to be very excited about the goodness of God in your life. Turn over to Psalm 136. This is a great psalm. We, we bring it up every new year. In fact, the, the staff and I at our meeting this week, we went through and we listed a whole bunch of things that God did this year at our church that we could praise him for. And that's what they're doing here in this verse. Is it's a list of things to thank God for, to praise God for. Look at all these specific ways. And they bring up ways that God, things that God did in creation. They bring up things that God did to deliver them out of Egypt, lead them through the wilderness, bring them into the promised land. Other nations came against them and God gave them victory over their enemies. And this is how the whole Psalm goes. Psalm 136 verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And then it says, for his steadfast love endures forever. And it says that 26 times. All right. Hey, here's a reason to give thanks. Here's something God has done. And then here's the refrain for his steadfast love endures forever. Because when I remember a way that God has been good to me in the past, it reminds me in the present that God's love never fails. And if he has promised to love me, and I know that he does love me, I can have confidence that God will continue to love me. And his steadfast love endures forever. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? Do you believe that God loves you, that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord? Remember that. See, that's how we grow in our love for God is when we remember that he first loved us. In fact, while we were still sinners Christ died for us. That's what motivates us to love him is he loved us first and he hasn't stopped and he will never stop <laughs> and his love will never disappoint you. It will never fail you. Remember that. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in the New Testament. <coughs> Look at how it says the love of Christ should be a motivation for us here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 14 and 15 here just to make it real clear what you and i should be thinking about in our love for jesus specifically it says here that the love of christ controls us the way that jesus has loved us compels us maybe you've heard it translated the word here the love of christ this is second Corinthians 5 14 page 966 if you got one of our books and it says the love of christ controls us like this is our consuming passion Okay, the love of Jesus Christ has us shaken up on the inside. That's the idea here of this, of this word. It's kind of like a carbonated beverage or some kind of a bottle of soda that if you shake it up and then you open the top, you just expect the contents to burst forth. That's what we're like. Out of all the people on planet Earth, Christian people are the most shook because we know the love of Jesus. And when you know what Jesus has done for you, how could you not love him back? That's the idea says the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. This is something we know. This is what we believe, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but those who live would live for Jesus, who for their sake died and was raised. See, a Christian person is a person who it is real that Jesus died for me. That's what it means. Like he actually left heaven entered space and time, 
put on human flesh, lived a perfect life that I was supposed to live but failed to do. And then he went up on the cross and they nailed him to a piece of wood and he bled out there on that tree and he offered his life as a sacrifice for me. And he experienced the wrath of God for my sin. So I will know no condemnation, but he went through it all for me. Do you remember what it was like the day you first realized what Jesus really did for you on the cross? Can you remember how you felt? Can you remember that sense of wonder? That sense of like, this is too good to be true? Like, why would Jesus, who's the Son of God, why would he come down here and humble himself? Why would he die on that tree for somebody like me? Why would he go through all of that for my soul, where you felt like a wretch, you didn't feel worthy of it, and you see his grace, you see his love, and you just think, that's amazing. I don't even understand it. I'm overwhelmed. Why would Jesus do all of this for me. Do you remember when you felt like that? Was there a day where you really sat down there at the foot of the cross and you were in awe and wonder that Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth, would die for a sinner such as yourself? Can you remember the heights of when you really loved Jesus? Some of us, if we're going to be honest here right now, we don't love Jesus like we used to because we're not remembering how Jesus loved us like we used to. I want to encourage you to remember the heights. Jesus Christ offered his life not for you to go through the motions. He wants a relationship with you. That's why he died. He died for you. Not for you to do the right things or say the right things. He died for you. He wants you. A real relationship between you and him. Go back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, and, and he gives us here a second thing that he wants us to do if we've abandoned our love, if we've lost our love. And I just want to highlight again that he uses the word repent. And this is a word that comes up throughout the New Testament. And it's a word that metanoia in the Greek, it means to change your mind. It's a 180 degree turnaround. Now, a lot of times in the New Testament, when the word repent is used, it's used of someone who's hearing this good news of Jesus for the first time. And they're seeing themselves for, as a sinner. And they're seeing that Jesus died to be their savior. And so they're changing their mind. They're saying, I'm not going to live for myself. I'm not going to continue in my sin. I'm not going to think that I'm going to get to heaven just by being a good person. No, I'm, I'm turning away from that to Jesus. And I'm seeing that the only way I'm going to be saved is he died for me. And I'm going to no longer live for sin, but I'm going to now live for Christ. And I'm going to obey his commands and follow his way. So it's this real radical change of mind. That's a lot of times how repent is used. Now here it's used for people who have already experienced that. I mean, these people at some point, they did love Jesus Christ. They did repent initially. But now they've gotten into this place where they're doing the right things and saying the right things, but they've lost that heart motivation of love. And so it's like hey, you as a believer need to identify this as sin, this lovelessness. This just kind of uh, obligatory obedience where you do the right things, but you're not doing it because of Jesus Christ. You need to see that settling for going through the motions and not being motivated by love, that's a sin in your life. And you need to repent of it. You need to change your mind about it. Jesus is not going to settle for less than your love. That's what it's saying. Change your mind. Don't think that's an acceptable way to live. Don't tolerate a lack of love for Jesus in your own heart. Repent of it. 
one part of repenting of it? Remember where you were when you loved Jesus. Remember the heights. Second part, he says here at the end of verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. So let's get that down for number two. Do the first works. He implies here that there were some works. You're still doing good works, but there were some works that you did when you really loved me. These first works, maybe when you were a brand new baby Christian, just believed in Jesus Christ, and now you're just fired up. You've got this new life. You've got the Spirit of God in you, and you're just ready to go for Jesus. Do you remember those first works? I want to ask everybody here, when did God save you? When did he turn your life around? When did you start living a new way in Jesus? What were some of the first things that you did when you became a Christian? Can you remember? What were your first works? Jesus says, Go back and do some of those first things again. Get back to some of those starting habits that you had right from the beginning. If there's some great time where you know I was really growing, I was really walking with Jesus Christ, what were those works you were doing at that time? you got to get back to those things. Yeah, you're still doing some works, but the first works, that's what you need to get back to. Now, I'm so blessed to be the pastor here. I absolutely love getting to see Jesus save people here among us, working with people like Rick, getting to talk to him. I mean, it's just amazing to see what God is doing as he's just taking people's lives and radically turning them around. And I get to see it sometimes front row seat. Sometimes I'm in the room. I get to see somebody get saved. Sometimes people are so excited they're saved. They run up to me. They want to tell me the full story. It's awesome to see Jesus save somebody. And so I've seen some things that new Christians, they just, they just start doing it right away. It's not like we have to train them to do it. It's not like we've got to tell them or encourage them or like teach them. Do you know what it says? They just start doing it. Okay? And let me just share with you three different examples of the kinds of first works that people do when they're brand new Christians and they just love Jesus and they just want one thing they do, three dashes here to give you real quick. One thing they do is they eat the word. That's one thing they do. They just cannot get enough of the Jesus book right here. They just are ready to search the scriptures because they want to learn more about Jesus. Now we're always encouraging people to read the Bible here at Compass HB. Okay, we got this thing called Scripture of the Day, if you've never heard of it. We've got video channel on YouTube, and we just want everybody at the church, all our brothers and sisters, to read five chapters of the Bible a week, a chapter every day from Monday through Friday. We're even giving holidays like Christmas and New Year's off, okay? And we're just trying to do five chapters a, a week. This week, it's only three chapters, uh, really, this week, okay? And people look at us like, mm, that's, uh, mm, I don't know. Pretty intense, you guys. Always up there talking about reading the Bible. Mm. Really a hard bargain. Five chapters a week. Wow, what if I miss a day? Now I'm behind. Mm, I don't know how that feels. I don't like that. People, you know what? I'll, I'll talk to a new Christian. He'll be like, what should I do now? What's next? I'll be like, hey, you should read the Gospel of John. If you're believing in Jesus, if it's about you and him, you should read the Gospel of John. Just start reading those chapters. See who he is. See what he says. That's who you know now. That's what your life is about now. It's him. They'll come back the next day. They'll be like, that was great. What should I do next? Right? And I'm like, well, what did you do? How many chapters? Oh, I just read the whole book. It's like they don't even know there's chapters in the book. They think the books are the chapters in the Bible. You know what I mean? They're reading whole books in one day, and they're thinking, well, that's not enough. What's next? Man, do you remember when you wanted God's word like that? 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about it. If you could turn there with me, 1 Peter 2, just a few pages over to the left. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. It's page 1014, and it makes this analogy 
here that we can all relate to. Those of us who have been around a baby. It says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Like a, like a baby wants their mom. Like a baby cries for the bottle. So Christians should long for the pure spiritual milk. Have you tasted that God is good? Do you have the sweetness of Jesus in your mouth? Do you have an appetite for more of Jesus in your life? Then get into the word of Christ. Let the Holy Spirit fill you. Long to get into God's word and grow up in your salvation. I guarantee you, if you're coming here today, looking at your, the Bible like you've already been there, done that. Like, you already know about that. You've already read that before. You already kind of heard this one before. You've already familiar with that. Thank you very much. If you get to a been there, done that attitude about the Bible, I guarantee you, you won't be at your first love for Jesus Christ. You can't be trying to get to know him more every day through the word, but acting like you already know it all. It's one or the other. Do you want more of the word? You're going to grow in your love for Jesus. If you want less of the word, your love is going to be corrupted because this is the book. From cover to cover, this is all about Jesus Christ. It's all about us leading up to him, seeing him in the gospel, and then how we're supposed to live for him in response. That's what this whole book is about. It's Jesus Christ being made known. God speaking to us through his son. If you, have, if you think the Bible is boring, there's no way you're going to be growing in your love for Jesus. You need to eat the word. That's one of the first words. They can't get enough because it's not just the Bible. It's not like it's a chore. It's not like it's a spiritual thing they're supposed to do. It's just how they want to know Jesus. And so that's one of the first works of new Christians is they eat the word. Another one that they do, the second dash there, is they tell the world. They just go and tell everybody. It's not like they need this evangelism class on how to share their faith. It's not like they need to learn some key verses. They just start running up to their family members. They go up sometimes to complete strangers, and they just start telling them this amazing work that Jesus has done in their life. And have they heard the good news that Jesus can save from sin, and he just saved me, and he can save you too, and it could be amazing, and they're so excited about it. You know what I'm talking about? If you see somebody get saved, and then they just take off, and they're like running, they're going to go tell their parents and their brothers and sisters, and it's like watching a, a train wreck when you already know it's going to go off the rails. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like this person, they're new, clearly. They don't know how this works. You go and tell the whole world, a lot of the world doesn't care. In fact, a lot of the world, they start persecuting you. They start calling you a Jesus freak. They start diminishing what you're saying and acting like, well, you are already a good person, and you were probably already a Christian, and everything in your life was probably already fine, and you're telling them, no, this amazing miracle has happened. I was blind, but now I see I was lost, but now I've been found. No, I want to tell you about amazing grace. And the world's like, we don't care about amazing grace, but you think everybody should know about it. That's a new Christian. That's a new Christian. Some of you have done that. Some of you, that was one of the first works you did when God saved you is you went and told your family members, your loved ones, because you wanted them to be saved too. Have you been so beaten down by the world's response that you've stopped telling people the good news? It's one of the first works. It's like people who've been Christians for a while, they're like, yeah, we might need a class. We might need, a, we might need like some tactics on how to do this. New Christians, boom. Let, let me tell you the greatest thing that just ever happened to me in my entire life. It's like if you've studied the miracles that Jesus does, he's out there opening blind people's eyes. There's this man who's walking around the cemetery with a legion of demons. Jesus just comes in. He casts these demons out. And what is Jesus saying to these people when he does these miracles? He's like, all right, guys, listen, listen, gather around. I know that was amazing, but my time has not yet come, okay? 
So we can't start raising a ruckus about this right now. So here's what I want you guys to do. Can you just keep this between us until, until later on? Can we, did any of those people ever listen to Jesus in the entire four Gospels? Did any of them ever keep it quiet? Like, I just saw a miracle. Sorry, I'm going to go tell everybody, right? I mean, the man who had a, a legion of demons that were thrown into the pigs, and the pigs ran into the sea, he went and told the Decapolis, that's ten different cities he went to, to announce to them that Jesus has power over demons and the mighty work that Jesus had done in his life. He went to ten different cities to tell people as a brand new Christian, brand new believer. One thing new believers do, they tell the world, are you doing that first work? Are you out there just sharing the good news? Because let me tell you what happens. When you're pleading with somebody else's soul and you're trying to tactfully love them and really bring them to the Lord and you're trying to share with them the gospel message from the scripture and you can see they're like thinking it through and maybe they're counting the cost of the sin they would have to repent of or maybe they're wondering if they can really take that leap of faith and they can really believe in Jesus and they can trust him to save their soul and you can literally see them thinking it over. You know what you feel when you're sharing the gospel with somebody? It brings you right back to why you believed in Jesus and how much you needed him to save you. And you're pleading with somebody else and really you start thinking to yourself, man, you got to believe this. This is why I believed it. This is why we all, and it immediately reminds you of the urgency of the gospel message and how this is the most important thing in life is whether this person believes in Jesus or not. This is their eternity right here in this moment. And it reminds you why you love Jesus Christ. Because look what he did for you and it's worth sharing. This person even needs to believe it because look what he did for them. And it just motivates you to love Jesus when you're sharing the gospel with other people. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. We'll end with this. 1 John chapter 2, a third thing that new Christians start to experience. One of the first works that they have is here in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. And it describes how people go from brand new baby Christians and how they start growing. And it says here, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, it says, I'm writing to you little children, so brand new Christians, because your sins are forgiven. You're just so excited. You're experiencing that first love. You're at the heights. Jesus just saved you. Your sins are forgiven for Jesus' name's sake. You're pumped up. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. You have this deep abiding love for God. You have a real relationship with God. You've grown in your faith and matured in your walk. But then he says, I'm writing to you young men. So these are the people. They're not brand new Christians, but they're growing now. They're maturing because you have overcome the evil one. Look what he says in verse uh, 14 there at the end. I write to you young men. So the, the people who are starting to grow in their faith, I write to you because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So one of the first works, after God does his work to save us, one of the first works that we do is we overcome the evil one. Let's get that down there for the third dash. This is something we start to experience as a new Christian. We're now, before we were completely under the power of sin. We were slaves to sin. We, we were mastered by certain sins that we kept on giving into. But once we're in Christ, once our sin is forgiven, once we have that new life, now when temptation rises up, we can actually tell temptation no, and we can put off our old sin, and we can now obey Jesus and take steps of righteousness in our lives. We start to experience spiritual victory. 
We start to see, hey, this sin used to define me. It used to own me. This used to always be what I would do and what I wanted. And now I look at it and I say to it, no, and I experience spiritual victory and I can obey Jesus Christ. It's so powerful. You hear those testimonies. Man, this person was doing drugs. This person was drinking. This person was smoking. This person was so involved in sexual morality. And they tried this and they tried that. And they wished they could stop. They could see how it was destroying their life. But they had no power. They couldn't change their ways. And then they get saved in Jesus. And all of a sudden you hear the testimony. And I never did that again, they say. That's the work of Jesus Christ. That's one of the first works. Is they said no to their sin. And they begin to experience this overcoming, this victory, this thing that we have because of Jesus, because of our faith in him, his life in us. And we overcome. We conquer temptations. We conquer these trials that Satan brings against us, these accusations to cause us to doubt, these trials to test our faith and try to knock us down. And we keep on trusting in the Lord and we overcome. That's what it says at the end of the letter there to Ephesus in Revelation 2. Verse 7, Jesus says to the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, they will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. See, one thing that every Christian can relate to is that day when I could finally say to that sin, you have no power over me. That's one of the first works. These are just three examples of the kind of first works. What were your first works? When you love Jesus with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, when you were like, Jesus, you have it all. I completely surrender. I give it all to you. What were some of the first things that you did? You know what? You need to go do those things again. You might need to do them today. And if you came in here today and you're singing these songs and you're doing the right things and you're saying the right things, but you're not doing it fully motivated by a love for Jesus Christ, I want to strongly encourage you right now, repent. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. Get back and do the things that you did at first. If God's going to do something with our church, if he's going to use us for his glory, we want to be a church that Jesus Christ doesn't want to shut down. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? I don't ever want to go through the motions. I don't want you going through the motions. We need to be doing what we're doing here because we love Jesus Christ. All the motions will be gone through if it's motivated by real love for Jesus. We need to get back to the heart. So the band's going to come and they're going to sing a song about how Jesus loved you when he died for you on the cross. And I encourage you as you sing to ask yourself, are you at the heights of your love for Jesus? Can you honestly say here today that you love Jesus more than ever before? That's what we all need to say. And if you can't say that, if you need to repent, come talk to me. Go seek out Pastor Dan in the back. I'll be here in the front. Seek out a brother or sister. Don't leave here without praying to repent of your lack of love. Don't make the mistake that the Ephesians did. Don't let your love be corrupted. Love Jesus Christ with an undying, sincere love. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son. And God, we, we confess that there is a great temptation in churches today, even here among us at our church, to say the right things, to do the right things, and then to pat ourselves on the back. And God, I just pray that you would humble us here right now and that you would help every one of us to ask ourselves honestly, can we say that our love for you right now is incorruptible? Can we say that here today we love Jesus more than we ever have before, that the best days of our walk with Jesus are ahead of us, are right now? 
God, I just pray for those who can say that, that you would strongly encourage them, that they would never forget these heights of their walk with you, that they would keep doing these first things that they're doing right now and never stop. But God, I want to lift up all my brothers and sisters who have to admit here this morning that we have abandoned the love that we had at first. And I pray that we would hear Jesus speaking straight to us here today, calling us out, calling us to repent and let us change our mind that it is not okay for me to love Jesus less than I used to. God, let us turn from that. Let us turn back to Jesus Christ. Let us remember what he has done for us. Let us love him because he first loved us. And let's get back to some of those first works. God, I pray that even today, this very afternoon, people will go home and they will binge read the Bible once again. That they'll go and tell somebody the gospel once again. That they'll go say no to that sin because they believe that Jesus Christ has the power to change their life. God, please, let us be a church that loves Jesus. We, do, we want Jesus to say that about us, God. Let us be those people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. And let's sing of what Jesus has done in his love for us.